0: good afternoon it 's Chickie Fitzgerald. this is the executive girlfriends group and it 's friday january twenty fourth two thousand and fourteen and I am so excited to be joined today by libby Gill libby is uh, I, I have a whole bunch of names for her which really begins with friend uh, she 's colleague she 's board member uh, of the executive girlfriends group and is also uh, a key advisor to me on uh, some of my other entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, she is also an author, and she uh, does keynote speaking. I mean it just goes on and on, but let me just introduce to you, my friend Libby Gill.
1: Thank you, Chickie. Nice to be here.
0: Well, we have uh, certainly had you on before and and you have written a number of books that i 've interviewed you uh, for on my solutions live show so why don 't you tell us just a little bit about you and your background? and what led you to become an author, because you've written a lot of different kinds of books.
1: Well, thank you. I, um, in fact, that's where we met, over a book interview. I, um, I've always worked in some aspect of communications that required uh, writing, and, and I have a real love for words and communication. My background... I have a degree in theater and a minor in dance. Uh, I'm not sure if that contributed to the communications, <laughs> but at one point, when I re- when I realized that it was uh, more lucrative to be working behind the camera and th- instead of in front of it, I was working in television and got a job working for what was then Norman Lear's company. and And if if you're my age, you may know he was the guy that did all of those many sitcoms, many sort of uh, groundbreaking in terms of things like All in the Family over the years. And I started there in the public relations department, and it was quickly bought by Columbia, and then Columbia was bought by Coca-Cola, and Coca-Cola's portion was bought by Sony, and I, in five years, went from being a an assistant to being vice president of publicity and advertising and promotion for Sony's worldwide television group, and then went on to do uh, similar work at, at Turner Broadcasting and then moved over to Universal, World, also Worldwide TV Group, and headed up their corporate communications and media relations. So for those many years in my first 20-year career, it was all about communicating, building both an internal brand, communicating with employees, but also overseeing the external brands for uh, television shows, for the studio itself, for the executives, for many of the projects that were in development and on the air. And I became a a quick study and student of what gets people's attention, what makes (laughs) them pick up a book or watch a show or go to a movie or buy a CD. And, of course, we lived and died by our overnight ratings, so you saw very quickly what literally moved the dial that got people to watch a show. And from there I went on and decided, okay, it was lovely uh, launching all of those shows and working on, Gosh, just about every everything from sort of the ridiculous to the sublime, from Married with Children to Law and Order to Ricky, <laughs> Sally, Jerry, Maury, and Doctor Phil. And by then, it was uh, it was time to go out on my own and do something that was a little bit more heart and soul, a little closer to um, who I had become and who I was as a person. And so, thirteen years ago, I, I launched my executive coaching and consulting business and have since worked with many entrepreneurs, but also lots of Fortune 500 companies like Nike and Cisco and Warner Brothers and Disney, and dearly love that process of figuring out uh, for individuals, who are you, which is essentially what your leadership brand is, what value do you bring to the organization, and how do you build and grow on that, and plus, how do you communicate that effectively, and I have a a particular fondness for working with women leaders, and there are tons of studies to back up the um, what most of us know intuitively that women are less self-promotional often than they need to be. They're, they're what I frequently tell women. You are, you are humble to a fault, and that is not a good thing, but learning how to right. self-promote gracefully is a fine art so um, for me it's all about the emotional connection so that's that's kind of where my business is today and i i couldn't be happier it's a lovely (laughs) thing to be able to love your work
0: well and if i'm remembering correctly your first book was a book about stay-at-home dads and that was back in 2001 and then i think you and i uh uh dove into uh your book traveling hopefully which i loved you wrote it Uh, really from the perspective of how to lose your family baggage and jumpstart your life. And and I had the perspective in my own career that I had a lot of career baggage I needed to lose uh, before I could be successful as an entrepreneur. And then uh, I believe that the first book that I interviewed you on was You Unstuck, which really was an extension of that, Mastering the New Rules of Risk-Taking at Work and in Life. And, you know... Uh, again, you, you really do have a, a talent of working with women, and, and one of the things I've loved about your role in the Executive Girlfriends group is for our charter members and our premium members, uh, you've uh, offered to do some coaching for them to help help them uh, figure out how to get themselves unstuck. So. Um, I have really, really enjoyed. I can't believe it's already been as many years as it has uh, that that we've uh, been friends and friends and colleagues. So, um, so the author side of of your world uh, ha, has taken a lot of different turns, as as I just spoke, and and now you've kind of come full circle and are back writing about your core passion uh, on the business side of the world. So can, can you take us through a little bit of that journey, and then we'll dive right in and talk about Capture the Mindshare.
1: Yeah, sure. As I began speaking to more and more groups, whether it's under the topic, the sort of umbrella of leadership or women's development or brand strategy and communication, to me, it all boiled down to how do we? What I I used to say, and then that became the book title. How do you capture the mindshare? How do you get deeply into someone's head and heart and stay there to build a lasting relationship that has value on both sides? And so, looking at that that intersection between that deep engagement, both with your own workforce and your external clients and and customers, it came back to, um, and I, I'm a little bit of a science geek. I, I can't claim to be a practitioner of any sort, but looking at the brain science and the studies that were coming out on what is now called neuromarketing, the idea of pairing marketing and neuroscience, because now researchers can actually, you know, peek inside our brains to see what motivates us. To buy, how we establish consumer habits—all of these things that in the past, people companies would rely on things like focus tests and surveys to get inside. You know, how do people make these buying patterns? And not that people lie necessarily, but not everybody is in touch with the fact that there is this this long pattern and network of all these many decisions that are made along the way, and they're all emotionally based, as logical and rational as we think we are. So that, to me, became a real passion for how do we translate that knowledge and apply that to individuals and to corporate cultures of understanding that there is an emotional component that has to come before the intellectual, before the business. And, of course, the greatest salespeople, and many of them, I find are our former teachers and people from other walks of life who feel like, well, I've got to establish some common ground. Right. And they do that naturally, but there is science that will tell us, yes, the consumer may think they like Diet Coke, but if you look into their brain with an MRI scanner, you see when they try Diet Pepsi, the parts of the brain, the um, the accumbens, the nucleus accumbens, the craving spot will light up, indicating, oh, that's what they really like, even though they think they like the other thing. So my goal was how do we translate that into something that will work for individuals and work within a culture now that we know that it's a much deeper thing than logic or business or why your products and services are great, but it's a much deeper level that you've got to get to before you can turn on that rational part of the brain.
0: Right. Well, Libby, let's, let's talk a little bit about the book itself because one, one of the things I loved uh, when, when you talk in, in the very first part of the book is about this, this whole issue of developing not only your, your purpose, but what, what's the premise for your business and what promise are you making? And, you know, the interesting thing in my own consulting is I'm, I'm an expert in a particular part of the adoption of travel, in, in the, uh, or I'm sorry, the adoption of technology in the travel industry. And I look at some of these companies, and I think that they have lost their premise. You know, I mean, we talk about people losing their purpose, but I think that that their premise of why they went into business to begin with. Um, hasn't kept up with what's going on around them. And I I think there's the other side of of entrepreneurs who are are usually in, in touch with that business premise. But help us separate out purpose, premise, and promise.
1: Well, if you think of the purpose, and often people will go to the value proposition or your brand statement, but ask yourself the simple question at the deepest level possible, what is it I really want to do? And when I started my own business, and and I don't talk about this often, but um, I'm beginning to now in my keynotes, I had this recurring scene that just popped up, you know, from universe or spirit or my own unconscious that my job was to, to provide hope and tools. And I felt like I've got to give people some sense that change is possible and then the strategies that will help them change. And I really feel that on the deepest level, that's my purpose. Then the premise is really that taking it out to that customer, what is the problem that you're solving? What is the pain that you were solving? I mean, you look at a big company like Amazon, their purpose is we're going to provide all these these, uh, products online. And the premise is we give you one-stop shopping, doesn't matter where you are, we are going to give you this entire range of products at your fingertips with flawless customer service. So that's sort of the premise is how they're going to do it. And then ultimately the promise is, what is the result that you're going to experience? What will you feel at the end of this whole process? What does your customer get? Uh, Do they get a better life? Do they get what I sometimes call units of happiness? Do they get Mm -hmm. more money in the bank? What is it that my promise to you is? And I'll tell you, I go to a fitness trainer. I am not by any means a gym nut, but I do like clothes, and I like to look look decent in them. (laughs) And I like to stay energetic, and my and I talk about Monica Nelson in my book, and she says her premise is that she can help people who have very little time, business women with very little time get in shape. That's the premise. The promise to me is, ooh, I'm going to look good, I'm going to feel energetic, and I'm going to tone, I'm going to add muscle mass. So it's really that sort of three-pronged approach, and when you can – can, you can support that with what you've done in the past and who you've done it for. Then you get a, a, a really great credibility and brand story that you can share with others.
0: Libby, one of the things I love about your books, and I told you this when when we first talked about uh, your book where you shared your life story, is they are so practical and actually at one point i I wanted to just sit down and and uh, make it into a a workbook
1: oh and I, and I, I, I did that later with you and stuck mhm
0: yes yes and and one of the things I love about this book is that you've got some tools that you share throughout the book, and on LibbyGill.com, dot com you can actually download uh, some of those tools, and one of them is the developing your purpose premise and promise PDF uh, worksheets. So uh, I just want to let our listeners know uh, that those kinds of things uh, are included. But let's let's now jump to uh, to a- the actual content of the book. You start out talking about uh, and you use uh, the alliteration of words that begin with the letter C. And and just to set the framework, those words are clarify, commit, collaborate, connect compete, communicate, and contribute. So let's start with clarify.
1: Well, obviously, I mean, and you've got some sophisticated branders in this group. You know you've got to clarify your vision. Where are you going? What are you going to do? And, and I tend to think a, in a year at a time. I, I'd love to tell you I could do a five-year plan, but I can't think that far ahead. But I do think in terms of one year at a time. In fact, on my blog, I've got my, my quarterly breakdown that I use, and you can download from my blog as well. And And clarifying not only where are you going, but what is that value? What do you do best for other people? And I find what I do is help them put into words and frame in language the ideas that are swirling in their head and then translate that into action. That is the value that I bring to my customers. It's a little bit brand strategy, it's a little bit alchemy, and it's a, it's a lot executive coaching of translating this vision. And I have a very clear process in You Unstuck where you clarify the vision, you simplify the path. I'm an absolute nut on how not how complicated can you make something, but how simple can you make it? And then how do you execute on an ongoing basis against very clear metrics? So that's the first thing with clarifying.
0: Right, right.
1: Next is you commit. You commit on a deep level, and commitment doesn't happen once. And, and going back to the, the gym idea, if I could pay money to take one gym class that would last me the rest of my life... I don't think I'd care how much it costs, (laughs) but you can't do that. So a commitment to excellence, to continuing to provide exceptional value means you're not only committing, but you're recommitting on a regular basis if you want to give the best. And I'll tell you, Chickie, we were on the phone uh, on this call a couple weeks ago, and I got an email from somebody on the call at the time who said, gee, I'm so glad to to hear you hear your voice and that you're on the call and it was somebody you mentioned the branding sessions that I do for people at the outset that are joining and it was from a from somebody who gave me a follow up on how much value that had been and to me that's, no, that's like scary. oh my gosh there's nothing better than knowing it that your value made sense to someone else because right. You've really got to look at at the value you bring that the marketplace wants from you. If anybody wanted to pay me to be a Broadway singer or an opera star, <laughs> man, I'd be there like a shot. But that is not the value they want from me. <laughs> so you've got to continue to hone what you do well and what people want.
0: Right. Next well, early, the... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Libby. No, um, on, on the on the first chapter where you're talking about clarifying the one word that grabbed me that ties into the commitment that you talk about in chapter two is discovering your emotional assignment because you can only get people to really commit, um, you know, when, when there's something at stake and when their emotions are tapped, that commitment can be really, uh, really so much deeper. And I, I uh, Remember seeing a post last week, our, our friend uh, Dondi Scamachi, who uh, Bob Berg uh, introduced to me, and I think you know Donde as well, uh, you know she has a statement about commitment, and, and it's very, very catchy. And I, I'm trying to remember what it is, but it really has to do uh, with, with getting people emotionally bought in.
1: Well, if you ask yourself, and I frequently ask people this when I speak, is what is the one thing? What is your emotional assignment? If you could only do one thing this year, what would it be? Now, I'm not talking about feeding your children or any of that. I'm talking about (laughs) in the workplace. What would that be? And most people are stumped because they can't boil it down to one thing. But if you had to, that is the thing. And when I, in traveling, hopefully I talked about this, this moment where i really sort of fell apart after my stepmother committed suicide and i ended up inheriting her mink coat and on one drunken sad uh really just mournful weekend i put it on for the first time and just sank and stayed wrapped in this mink coat on the floor in my hallway for Mm. two days crying my eyes out And when I finally said, get your ass up off the floor and do something, I mean, it was like arms were coming through that coat and lifting me up, I felt like. That's Mm. when that idea of hope and tools started swirling in my head. You've got a gift. Go use it in the world. And it was years later, it's only been this past year, that I have started talking about hope in the workplace. And... How, that that is a true leadership quality that is perhaps the most overlooked and the most useful. And it was only when I got to this point of this deep level of commitment that I started talking about it. And, frankly, some people get it and some don't. Typically women say, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what we need. And it takes a little bit longer for guys to get into the huh, hope in the workplace, what's, what's that about? <laughs> and then once they hear how it ties into action, they get it. But but it's back to really that, that deep emotional commitment. Are you ready to reveal who you are? And right. it's been the most exciting work that I've done, and it's, it's really rewarding to be able to go into a company and say, hey, this is what your leaders really have to share. This right. is what you need to instill. You need to feed hope to your workplace and get them all excited and engaged emotionally.
0: Well, and it does resonate so strongly because we've just come off of this, you know, fairly fairly challenging decade (laughs) from a whole bunch of, you know, perspectives. From, you know, our our country being invaded and and, you know having to deal with everything around 2000, uh, the September uh, 11th of 2001, and then all the way through uh, to the economic crisis and the ripple effect that that had on all of our lives. And I think in many ways it did strip. Hope away, and and it brought us to a place where we had to be so so realistic about life and right. you know cutting back. And I mean, I, I will never forget the day uh, when we finally acknowledged that we couldn't continue our lifestyle since mm-hmm. our, our uh, income had dried up, and I had put everything into a venture that had failed. And when they Wheeled out the crystal springs bottled water dispenser. you know it was like my life was, wow. was changing and, and they and for some reason, that was like the symbol of of my lifestyle and I mean it's craziness for somebody else It might be you know having to downsize your car or whatever but it was bottled water to me but um, I want to move on into this next section because I think this is so important particularly for the executive girlfriends group because we have such an amazing opportunity to collaborate together and this chapter is all about creating your brand one conversation at a time so tell us how that fits into the clarification you've just done and then making that commitment.
1: Well, It's interesting because I've talked, I've talked to companies who feel that, and I've, I've interviewed a number for the book, that feel like collaboration is truly their competitive edge, that instead of having hierarchy and red tape and uh, sort of that Mm -hmm. formal structure. They have friendships, and they have openness, and they have knock on my door if you need me kinds of collaborations. And in one story that I thought to me was the epitome of collaboration, there's a a hospital in in New Mexico, and it was really interesting to me, and I've interviewed them extensively. It was a great story because they they had to bridge the cultural gap between the Navajo population, who were located there, and they're in a fairly remote area of New Mexico, and this sort of the mainstream, you know, American population or Hispanic population. And when they were building a new wing of the hospitals, they did deep research, talking to everybody from the janitors to the neurosurgeons about what they needed, what they saw, how things worked, and they have uh, they spent a year on just their brand language, their values but what they found was the navajo beliefs were in such opposition or so different from the the mainstream american beliefs and people didn't they didn't go to a hospital unless they were dying and if they were dying it was this was not a good place to be and they felt that when they pass their spirit will alight on whoever is in the room if there's no way for it to physically mm. escape and in the old days they lived in these round hogans and they would burn them to the ground when somebody died there it was not a good thing that your spirit is escaping and alighting on you because they believe the worst parts of your character would land on that person so the last thing these dying patients wanted was to have medical staff or family members in the room with them and this was causing great grief (laughs) to the nursing staff as you can imagine they were banished from the rooms of patients so when they built this new wing, they got a very innovative team on board, and they built this wing with what they called screened-in porches, which were, to, to my eye, it would be, wow, isn't this wonderful, this is a, a porch in a hospital room. To the right. Navajo eye, it was, oh, my gosh, I can have my family in the room because the spirit can go out right through the screen. And they were able to infuse that kind of bridge of cultures through this entire hospital wing. It's, it's the walls are round, and in the corner, which they've put at the compass poles, north east, south, and west, in alignment with the Navajo tradition, these round rooms that are similar to the Hogan, but to me, to you, to the nursing staff, it's a, a wonderful room for teaching, for family, for maybe for prayer, for chapel, but to the Navajo eye, it, this is, this is a, a, a Hogan. It says, you have referenced our culture. And to me, the fact that they were able to take this collaboration out to the city, who for the first time they'd had three referendums to pass the, the tab on building this hospital. They'd never won until they came back with this plan and the city foot the bill. So it was such a, a collaboration. and It was because people were willing to share those deep emotional truths. That could have seemed in conflict, that could have seemed weird, that could have seemed too off putting to other people that didn't share those beliefs. But because the culture was safe and open, they were able to share their story and find a way to really work together in, in such a, a physical structure. I mean, to me it's just that is the most marvelous example. And if we take just a little bit of that and we're okay. more open about what we believe or who we are or how we work best, I mean, imagine what we can do in our own businesses.
0: Well, and it leads in so perfectly then to the next topic, which is about connecting and creating the authentic emotional link. And I think what you've just described, Libby, and the, the essence of collaboration is listening, right, because you can't connect. To somebody who you're not listening to them. Oh
1: my gosh, that is so often. Sometimes when I speak, I'll throw that out there as what is the greatest quality of a, a leader, and and often so someone will say listening, and I, that is so true because we forget that the uh, the message delivering it is just that one piece of it. I think it was George Bernard Shaw that said that the the great uh, myth of communication is believing that it has been received or something like that, and right. I think that, that is where we miss that connection is that you've really got to look at, what did you hear when I said what I said? You know, how did that land? And you've got to drill it down in today's practical and digital and fast-moving world. How do you do that on a website? How do you do that in a tagline? How do you do that in a color palette? How do you do that in a sales pitch? You know, all of these ways that we have of connecting and, and how do you do that in a way that creates that visceral, immediate sort of, ah, that's different. I have a client now who is a former Nike executive and has just gone into the world of coaching, and she is going to be fabulous. And her whole, it took her such a, a long time to really look at what's the right name. And we spent you know, a good six weeks on names and URLs, and finally we hit it, and I won't share it in, until she's ready, but and also <laughs> a website that looked different, and right. she said, I don't have a lot of credits yet because I'm new. I said, it doesn't matter because this is going to be different and simple and elegant, and you've got the right name, and that's how you're going to connect with the people that, that are meant to connect with you. And uh, we've got to look at all of those things, not to make people crazy with all the different ways they have to, have to make their brand connect. You certainly have to make some tough decisions about how you best connect with other people. And then you've got to weave that into your business. But for me, it's taking this, this message, whether I ever utter the phrase hope and tools, but it's looking at how do you help people create a vision, both in terms of their brand and then who they are in their culture. Coal- corporate culture, and as individuals, and how do you execute on that? How do you deliver upon that consistently over time? Mm-hmm. And that's really what this idea of connection is, and it's what keeps people coming back for more.
0: And when you talked about collaboration actually being a competitive force, the next one is actually about competing and what makes you so So special, and I I wrote a white paper some time ago called "Dare to Differentiate" because I (laughs) think in in our industry, I you know I still spend the bulk of my time in the travel industry. We have just got so much that has been commoditized. I mean, from the travel product itself, you know, the difference between an airline seat is you know you really can't even articulate it anymore. and, and so people struggle to figure out what does make them special. And, uh, you know, I think you've just talked about connecting and, and that emotional link that you create with people. Um, and, and you also use the word with your friend's uh, site about simplicity. And I think Google has played a large part in driving simplicity. And it used to be that the state of the art, if you remember back to uh, Yahoo and Net. Uh, what was it? Netscape? Was that? Uh, Netscape. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those screens. If you go back to the Wayback Machine uh, on archive. Org, and you look at how busy those screens were, uh, you know, that's how Google just came in and captured our hearts and minds because they gave us a blank white screen with a box and a logo. Yeah. yeah
1: there's so nothing else So let's talk you can about do.
0: competition.
1: All you can do is type something in.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right.
1: Um, Yes, and and I get further streamlined and and cleaner, I think, as I go along in terms of just my website and my message. And I think that's what the world needs. Not only do we, we free up our brains for creativity when we let something go, when we make things more simple, but I think we give our customers both internal and external, a great sense of comfort that we have not overloaded them and added yet one other layer of red tape or bureaucracy or mess on top of what they're already contending with. So I think that's a real skill of leadership is to be able to simplify things for for, for both their own teams and their external customers. Um, another thing that's really interesting that I've found is working with a group called k a o which most people wouldn't know unless they're in the the health and beauty business, but they have a number of huge brands like um, uh, John Frieda and – Bands and Curell. I mean, they're very well-known in this world, and they're the ones who said they out-collaborate the competition. They feel very strongly because they're competing with Procter & Gamble and Unilever and L'Oreal, right. huge companies that just absolutely dwarf them. So they look at things of, you know, how can they out-compete, and they've simply picked a couple of ways that they can out-compete others, and one is by training their reps. They make their partners in their in the re- retail chain, true partners in the business in terms of training and the the marketing. And, And they've found that because they're small and nimble, they can absolutely excel in a way that maybe Johnson & Johnson cannot. So those personal connections, keeping things small and really training their end users has become a real focus for their business. So it's finding what you do, do differently. Right. What do you deliver in a way that's that's a twist on others? And once in a while, I'll, I'll talk about this. I had a fellow come up to me at a technology company after a keynote, and he said, "Well, you know, I, I we all we're all tech people. We all kind of do what everybody else does." And I said, "Really?" And I thought, and, and I said, well, you must do something differently than your your colleagues and competitors. Either you're faster, you're more skilled in a specific area, you deliver the service differently, you've got a different type of personality. What? And he couldn't think of a thing. And I thought, man, this does not bode well for your future. <sighs> look at what you do and how you do it and then really build on that. And sometimes, I mean, look at Zappos with their quirkiness. They've made that a huge part of their brand. Right, right to the point that they have their—I uh, think they call it their culture tour, where people come in and 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 now they train them in branding and culture, and they take them through their you know cubicle world, and everybody works in the cubicles there, where one person's decorated his cubicle as a tiki hut, and another as a, a college dorm, and they are allowed to do that as long as it's within the bounds of you know good taste short of pornography, you can do what you want. And that's a big part of let's not make our call center folks drones. Let's let them have personalities and style and a sense of humor. And they've built a brand around that sort of culture of fun and quirkiness.
0: Well, it sounds like Chapter Five and a Half should have been culture then,
1: <laughs> yeah, because you know what? Uh, it, it's right.
0: it's one of the Cs, but it really comes off of all of the rest of this. That when you are special and in your competitive set, if you don't bake it into your culture, you really can't communicate it in the way that it really matters. And Chapter Six is about communicating, talking the walk. Influencing people, inspiring uh, people through that, and you know what occurred to me when you were just talking about this gentleman is sometimes I think we do know what we want, we just can't get it. Out of our mouths and and i 'm also thinking about several weeks ago when you and the board and I were talking about where we wanted to take AG in, t- in two thousand and fourteen, and I kept struggling and struggling and then you and I got on the phone together and and you asked me that clarifying question you know from from uh, chapter One of you know what do you want it to be, and then all of a sudden, I was able to turn around and communicate not only communicate but to to run full speed ahead. Uh, you know, t- to push it back out there for the people who, you know, originally reached out to me and said, "I love the Friday afternoon calls." And then when I had to move it for personal reasons, it didn't meet what it was originally created to do. So, I know communications is a huge part of who you are, and and both your past career and how you behave uh, with the people that you coach. You know, I know from my personal coaching with you. Um, you know, there just isn't anything more important than that. So what are the, the key things about well, communication? let me give you
1: one little tool, because communication is, it. this is the part where it becomes strategic and laborious, and it's got to have thought and preparation. You want this, and we've talked about the inspiration and the differentiation. Now communication is, Weave a process and stick to it. Change it when it's not working. And I'll give you one tool that I use, and 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 I, I say in the book, I took this from my clients at Avery Dennison because their communications team uses this. And I've found people that I've worked with have absolutely embraced it. And it's sort of a communications process. When you begin a new project or a process, and it's called the magic T, uh, letter T, and this is in my book. And here's what it stands for. Now I, I have a sort of a circle, because the its M is for the message. What are the three things you want people to know, to do, to remember? A, and we're spelling out magic, is the audience. Who's your audience or audiences? G is your goal. What are you hoping to accomplish with this program, this project, this rollout? I, issues. What are the issues? What are the problems? What are the challenges that you can anticipate, good or bad, that could come up to impact what you're doing? What's going to get in your way? C are the channels. How are you best going to communicate this message? What channels, what vehicles, what platforms? or ideal for each audience, and T is for timing. What are the deadlines? What are the milestones? What is the ideal timing? So if you take that whole magic T in a circle, it's all of those things interconnected. And I will have groups that I work with. I just did a brand training at Angostura, uh, the rum and bitters company in Trinidad, and they took their whole message, every different team, and went through this magic teat process of looking at, knowing what the vision was. Okay, now we've got a rollout for a product or a project or an event, whatever it was, and they would drill through this. Okay, what's the message? Who's the audience? What's our goal? What are the issues involved? What channels are we using? And what's our timing? And it's incredibly effective. It sort of covers all of your bases. And right. if you do that, at the beginning of a process, you will eliminate a lot of problems that might come in down the line by just not thinking about them.
0: Well, let's uh, just bring this home with uh, Chapter 7, which is all about uh, contributing, if not you, who. And, uh, and then just in summation, um, what the eighth see.
1: Well, that is the biggie is contributing, and I, I certainly everybody on this call I think the, you you attract people who are contributors who who want to do good from the for the world. And in this chapter, I really look at the the whole concept of do good and do well, and identify some companies that have done very well, like Tom's uh, shoes, which was the one for one. I'm going to. You buy a pair of shoes, I'm going to give a pair of shoes. Again, very simple concept. Now, copied by many other companies because he's done it so well. And really interesting that a, a simple idea can take off like that. A simple idea with lots of working parts and lots of good business sense behind it. So... We we were Tom's proved to us that you don't have to pick one or the and Blake Mikowski is the the CEO behind that you don't have to do good or do well you can actually do both if you do it thoughtfully so I talk about some ways that you can do that and if you were a for profit company and I, I make no bones about it, that's what I am I got no problem with that right. but if you were looking to align. Be smart about how you choose a charitable cause that fits your brand and that fits with your core clients and your your customers can get behind it with you or can recognize that you're not just making money, you're doing good for the world. And they can see why you've chosen the group that you've chosen or the cause that you've chosen to get behind and obviously some big corporations do that very well. Tide rolls out there. They've got a, a rolling laundromat, and they go to the site of natural disasters with a, a an 18-wheeler with um, washers and dryers on it and people who've gone through an earthquake or a hurricane, and, you know, washing, it's called Loads of Hope, which I just love. Mm. And the people that have their homes and their, their systems have been devastated by some natural disaster. What a lovely thing that you can get clean clothes all for free. And obviously yeah, I mean. that reinforces Tide's message that, you know, we sell soap. But it's, it does it in such a smart and clever and... Con- a contributory way that people have really embraced it. And so we can all do that in our own larger small ways and I think that's really important.
0: Right, right. Well, Libby, what, what is the, the one thing that you want people to take away uh, from this call? I mean, clearly there is so much material in this book, and it again, uh, I love the approach because it's so practical, and the combination of the storytelling and then the practical recommendations is just, to me, the perfect, the perfect read.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, I think it is weaving all the, all of those things together, and knowing that it just takes a little courage and and I can share i can I can let people read the last the eighth c, which is about a young a little girl who did an amazing thing in the world and when I met this young woman, I was just blown away by the contribution she had made, and uh, she became my c for courage um mm. with what she was able to accomplish and I think it's really. Do something. Start somewhere. Take action. And I'll, I'll tell you now, and this is a challenge I put out for lots of individuals and companies, if you've gotten anything out of this talk, take whatever you've gotten and translate that into some action that you can take in the next 24 hours. Right. If you've been thinking about aligning with a charity, pick up the phone, do some research, go to Charity Navigator. If you've thought, gee, I really need to spruce up my, my brand, my look, call your web guy, call your, your team and say, let's set a meeting for next week and get this done. But take some action in 24 hours because there is, there is power, there is magic in, in really saying, I'm not sure I'm ready yet, but I'm going to do it anyway.
0: Well, Libby, thank you so much uh, for joining us, and and I do want you to stay on so that uh, our members can ask uh, questions and and give you comments about what you shared. Uh, For those who are interested in the Executive Girlfriends Group, just check us out on www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We also have a public uh, Facebook page. Boy, I'm having trouble with my tongue today. And uh, we would love to have you join us uh, live on a call where you can stick around and talk to our author and expert uh, that we have on each week. So I'm going to go ahead and turn off the recording now, and then uh, those who are on the phone can ask their questions. Thanks for joining us.